It's getting to be that time of year again. The days are warming up, the flowers are in bloom, and tour groups are prowling the old town. It's easy to forget when Geneva is your home, when it's just where you happen to live and move and do your grocery shopping. But this is a place that many long to visit. I'll be working away at my desk upstairs with the window open and hear an especially loud voice drifting up from the Bourg de Four. I crane my head out to see, and there's another tour group stopped in front of our church talking about the old town. Sometimes I wave just to be sure they know that there are still people working in these buildings. It's not all ancient history. Some come to Geneva to walk along the lake and lounge in the cafes. Some come to learn the history of the Red Cross and the United Nations and all the important humanitarian work that's deeply rooted here. And some come to walk in the footsteps of John Calvin, to see the city that he transformed and the places where he preached, and maybe to take a picture of the chair in the cathedral where he sat. For many in the Reformed tradition, this city is holy ground, the spot where a movement began, a town rich in history and character and stories. Athens in Paul's day was maybe a little bit like that. It was the city of the great philosophers, a center of culture and learning, a place for thinking deep thoughts and holding great debates. The early church must have loved to tell this story that we just heard about Paul preaching there. This little movement that only a few years earlier was a small time operation centered around a peasant rabbi off in the villages in Galilee is now being presented on one of the greatest stages that the world had to offer. Biblical scholar Matt Skinner imagines the church's reaction this way. Look, our guy was there in Athens, the place that symbolizes the intellectual accomplishments of the Greek-speaking world. Paul spoke and the Athenians listened. What a thrill it must have been for the first Christians to picture this scene. If you have joined us for worship in recent weeks, you know that we are reading bits from the book of Acts this Easter season, watching the proclamation of the Easter gospel rapidly propel Jesus's followers from Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth. Paul's time in Athens is sort of one of the book's high points, and it's a wonderful and provocative story for us to dig into a little bit this morning. It seems that Paul did not actually come to Athens to preach. He came to get out of harm's way. Angry mobs had formed in the last two places where Paul preached, and some friends just barely managed to sneak him out and into Athens. So he's only there to wait for others to join him and sort of plot his next move. So you would think he might just lay low for a while, but Paul never seems to keep his mouth shut for very long. He could not help but notice all the religious images in Athens. This was a city full of temples, of course, with depictions of gods and goddesses everywhere you looked. And he started debating with anybody around who would listen, in the synagogue, in the marketplace. And before he knew it, he was being hauled off to the authorities to properly share what in the world he was talking about. Our text says that Paul stood in front of the Areopagus to speak. That can either refer to a group of people or to a place. So you might wanna, you can get out the cover of your bulletin here. This is just to give you a, a glimpse of the scene. 
The Areopagus was the leadership of ancient Athens, sort of the city council, and they met on a prominent hill that was just below the Acropolis, that famous place that if you've ever been to Athens, of course you've seen, covered with enormous temples and other grand buildings. So that cover of your bulletin shows a depiction of this area. The Acropolis is up at the top and the Areopagus is the, the place in the foreground just below. It helps to imagine the scene a bit, to picture the great buildings looming in the background and this stately theater that Paul suddenly finds himself kind of yanked into. He's in the middle of an amazing place, steeped in culture and history. So what's he gonna say? Our reading from the first letter of Peter today says we should always be ready to make an accounting for the hope that is in us. And Paul certainly does that in his speech in Athens, but not in an aggressive or combative sort of way. Not at all. In fact, he goes to great lengths to speak the language of his audience with reverence and respect. He gives a sermon that acknowledges their deep religious longings, that draws on ideas from their philosophers, that quotes two of their poets. Stone statues have their limits in how much they can tell us about God, he says. The one who created everything and all of us is greater than any image we could ever come up with. Our longings are there to nudge us toward discovering in greater depth who the God of the universe really is. So it's a sermon tailor-made for this particular audience, one that finds all kinds of common ground. There is really nothing here that a bunch of first century pagan philosophical types would find objectionable. That's true. Until he gets to this bit about the resurrection. After all his sensible, thoughtful words that everybody could agree on, he has to go and talk about a dead guy being raised. And here things get more complicated. Here the scoffing begins. God has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Paul says. And of this he has given us assurance, given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Everything else Paul said in his sermon fits pretty nicely into the Athenians' way of thinking, into their way of seeing the world. But this part, this business about God taking a person who was dead and making him alive again, this part doesn't fit at all. It seems this is where Paul's sermon abruptly ended. You have the next little bit printed in your bulletin this morning with many scoffing and a few curious to hear more and a few joining Paul and his companions. So it's an old story from a distant time and culture. We are not first century Athenians and in most ways we probably think very differently from them. But when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, I think we might in fact find some common ground. Because for many of us too, it is a strange and difficult thing to talk about. I mean, the idea that God raised a person from the dead, that the tomb was really empty, that in some way this individual had a bodily life beyond death is awfully bizarre. It sounds fantastic. It goes against everything we know. It doesn't compute. So I think many Christians sort of hurry past the specifics of the resurrection. We think of it as a symbol or as pointing to the idea that Jesus is still alive in our hearts or in our community. I have certainly thought of it that way and probably preached about it that way many times. 
But that's really pretty clearly not what the Bible says. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who has written widely on this topic, says that whenever the biblical, scholar, biblical authors speak about the resurrection, they use language that makes it clear they're not speaking figuratively about Jesus's ongoing spiritual presence with his followers. That might sound nice and sensible and quite a bit easier to swallow, but it wouldn't actually be all that remarkable, really. No, the Bible pretty emphatically speaks about Jesus's resurrection in physical, bodily terms. He isn't dead, he's alive, and he has taken his body with him. Think of all the stories of Jesus appearing to his disciples and followers in the days after Easter. There he is, sharing a meal, breaking bread and pouring wine, and there he is, swallowing a bite of fish, and here he is, holding out his wounded hands to be touched. Something truly astounding has happened, according to Jesus' earliest followers and friends. We didn't just feel like he was close by. We didn't just remember him in some particularly moving way. No, we saw him. We touched him. God really did this. I know it sounds fantastic and uncomfortable and strange. It's the sort of thing that we are totally reluctant to believe. It is helpful to know that the same thing was true for the people in Jesus' time. They also knew very well that dead people tend to stay dead. That's not like exactly a modern discovery. Nobody had this event in mind. Nobody was expecting something like this to happen. Not Jesus' own disciples, not Jewish people in general, not the philosophers in Athens. There were varied ideas floating around about what the afterlife might be like, but nobody imagined God would yank one person up from the depths of death and make him alive again, body and all, right here in the middle of history. Scoffing was the most logical response then, just as it is now. It sounds fantastic and uncomfortable and strange, but if it's true, and the first Christians clearly believe that it was, then it changes everything. Everything we thought we knew about the limits of God's power, about the way the world works, about life and death, about the future, it's all blown apart. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, really and truly, at a moment in time, then God is absolutely committed to this world and to us and to those around us. God really means to honor and bless and raise these bodies too. I don't claim to understand it, but somehow this business about the resurrection helps me make more sense of the fervor and the bravery and the commitment of the first Christians. They were not just moved by Jesus's words, as significant as they were. They were not just trying to preserve his memory, as important as that was. They were gripped with the conviction that God was really up to something unprecedented and world-changing. God had raised Jesus, and God means to raise us, too. It's why they gave their lives to this movement. It's why they shared their possessions and looked after one another's needs. It's why they took off into the unknown following the Spirit's leading. It is why Paul could not leave the resurrection out of his otherwise totally palatable sermon in Athens. After all, it changes everything. So even if it feels a bit strange to you, 
I would like to invite you to hold this notion close this week. Maybe hum the refrain to the hymn that we are singing today. Jesus is risen and we shall arise. Hum that, speak those words to yourself and let it shape the way you see. Let it shape the way you see the creation around you. The trees, the sky, the mountains, the lake. Let it shape the way you see strangers on the street and neighbors in your building and your own self when you look in the mirror. Let it shape all of it. God doesn't just tolerate the stuff of this world and the bodies of its creatures. No, God honors it, all of it, holds it in love and means to redeem it. God has raised Jesus and means to raise us too. It is the best of news, friends. It's news that changes everything. Thanks be to God. Amen.